How do you decide what to do in a worship service and what not to do in a worship service? This is an important question for churches, an important question for leaders in the church, for elders in the church. Welcome to All Things Reformed Podcast. Yet again, my name is Zichunga and again joined with Pastor Confex Makalera. One of the issues that um, uh, Martin Luther and, and John Calvin uh, differed on was on um, the teaching on worship. Yes. Um, how did this come about? What, what did they independently teach? Yes, yes. So as, as we're saying, the Reformation is, is going on. The churches have left the Roman Catholic Church. And we must also stress that in all these men, even though they have differences, mm-hmm. but their concern is God's word. Oh, yes, yeah. yes. It's not like, okay, I don't like Z, what are you doing? I'm going to start my own thing. No. What they're being driven by is we want to be faithful to the scriptures. Right. We want to be faithful to God. We want to glorify God. And each one of them, in their own context, they are laboring to say, how does that look like in our context? How does being a faithful church look like in our context? How does glorifying God look like in our context? So because they're in different contexts, eventually some of the things are going to be different for sure. So how does Martin Luther respond to worship as he sees it from the scripture? Yes. So coming from the Roman Catholic Church, they have to answer that question, how does a faithful worship look like? Mm. Right? So they go to the scriptures. Because they are reformers. They want the Bible to have a final say in things. So they go to the scriptures and they come to the conclusion. The Roman church comes to a conclusion to say, whatever is not prohibited in the Bible, if the Bible doesn't say, don't do it, then you can do it in worship. Give me an example. Okay. So, for example, we go into the Bible. The Bible does not say, well, uh, during worship, don't do drama. Right. You'll not find that verse in the Bible. So the Roman church will say, well, where in the Bible are we prohibited not to do drama in the church, in the worship service? They say, nowhere. Oh, we can do that. So they will do that, right? Uh, so this is called normative principle of worship. Whatever is not prohibited in the Bible, we can do in worship. John Calvin and the Reformed Church will take a different stand on that. Okay. They also go to the scriptures. And they'll come to the conclusion to say, we are to do in worship whatever we are commanded. So whatever we are going to do in the worship, it should be that it has been commanded by God in his word. So when you open the Bible, what do you see? You see that when God's people gather, there is prayer. So we're going to have prayer in worship. When God's people gather, there is the preaching of the word, the reading and the preaching of the word. We're going to have that. Everything that the word commands us in worship, that's what we're going to do. We're not going to add anything to that. So that would be a key difference, uh, and it continues up to now. Reformed churches are known by regulative principle of worship, which is called regulative principle of worship. Only that which God has commanded us, we're going to do that in worship. So scripture regulates yes. worship. So the worship, yes, mm-hmm. perfect. Mm-hmm. And while our friends in the uh, Lutheran church and other churches will say, well, if God does not say you can do it, then we can do it in worship. Which one do you hold? Uh, I'm reformed. I hold on to regulative principle of worship. Having said all this, now we dive into the issue of the day. And today we begin the five solas.
So we begin with the solas. They are called solas because this is from Latin. Sola meaning alone. Okay. The Reformation was well known by emphasizing on alone. Because most of these things that the reformers were pointing out, it's not like they were new things. Mm. The Roman Catholic Church knew about them. And they were actually uh, observing them. And actually they will agree with you. What will make the Reformation different from the Roman Catholic Church is the alone word. Mm. So the alone, English in Latin is sola. So sola, so five solas, the five alones of Reformation. Some will call them the five banners uh, of uh, Reformation. What's the difference between the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestant Church, particularly the Reformed Church? Mm. And to answer that question, you'd say, well, it's the five solas that make us different from the Roman Catholic Church. What are these five solas? Yes, so the first sola is sola scriptura, or scripture alone. Okay, so they're saying, well, the Bible alone is the final authority for the matters of faith and practice, or the Christian living. As I've already said, the Roman Catholic Church will not say, well, no, the Bible is not a fine authority. They are going to say it is a fine authority. But the difference is they're not going to say that the Bible alone. So they will say the Bible and the tradition of the church are the final authority for faith and Christian living. The second one is uh, Solas Christus, Christ alone. The Bible tells us in 1 Timothy, there is only one mediator between God and man, the Lord Jesus Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, through Jesus Christ. The Roman Catholic Church admits that. Yes, Jesus is the way. He is the mediator. But they're not going to say he is the only mediator. And I think in the, in the first episode, uh, Pastor Confix, you shared about um, uh, Martin Luther praying to St. Anne. Yes. Mm. So you have the saints that mm. you can approach the Father through the saints. Mm. And actually the saints can help you pray to the Father. And so in the Roman Catholic Church, they pray through Mary mm. as well. They go through Mary as well. Uh, and the reformers and the reformation say, no, when we see in the Bible, we can't go to the Father through the saints. We can go to the Father through Mary. There's only one mediator, Jesus Christ. So is Christ alone. That's the second solar. Sola, yeah. yeah, the third one is sola fide, uh, faith alone. Again, the question is, for us to be justified. Martin Luther. Yeah. Uh, we go back to Romans. How can I be made right? Yeah. Uh, Romans 1, 17, Habakkuk 2, verse 4. The just shall live by faith alone. The Roman Catholic Church will say, yes, by faith. But not alone. The sacramental system is also important for your salvation. And the fourth sola will be sola gratia. Uh, grace alone. Salvation is by grace alone, nothing else. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church will say, yes, salvation is by grace, but not alone. You also need the sacraments because the sacraments help you to gain grace from God. So they're not, they not going to say grace alone. And the last one is, sorry, Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory. 
Now, and here the reformers are saying, when you look at salvation, it's all of God. He's the one who is doing everything. He's the one saving us. We are dead in our sins. There's nothing we have done to be saved. So all the glory for our salvation, for our Christian life, should go to God alone. And they're saying, well, in the Roman Catholic Church, they can't do that because it's not God alone, but there are also all these things that you are doing. It's almost like there are some works that you have to do in order for you to be saved. And in that case, it would be impossible to say God alone. Be the glory because you have contributed something. And those are the five Soras of Reformation. Right, we start now with uh, Sola Scriptura. Yes. Scripture alone. Yes. Do we have an emergence in the church today where Scripture is not believed to be the only standard for righteousness? How does the church in Malawi look like? Yes, I mean, uh, so uh, this is, uh, as, uh, as the theme of our discussion has always been, the church reformed and always reforming. We need this truth even in our time. Now, in, in Malawian context, this is very interesting because you go out on the street there, you ask anyone, almost anyone there will tell you, oh, yeah, I believe that the Bible is God's word. That's not the problem. Uh, do you believe that what the Bible teaches, you should believe uh, that what the Bible teaches should be a fine authority in your life? Most of them are going to say yes. But the challenge is, even though most of us Malawians or Malawian Christians are going to say that, we don't put that into practice. So we say that with our words of mouth. Oh yes, the Bible is a fine authority. But we don't hold on to that. So a good example, you're going to, say, to see someone who believes that the Bible is a fine authority for their life. And they're going to open the Bible. They're going to read, for example, this is just an example I'm giving. Mm. They're going to read that God has divorce, and God allows divorce only on two grounds. When there has been unfaithfulness in that marriage, and the one who is a victim can separate from the other person. Right? That's what the Bible teaches. Or when a spouse has willfully abandoned another, then the one who is abandoned can remarry. That's what the Bible teaches in 1 Corinthians 7. These are two grounds of divorce that are accepted by the Bible. So someone says, I believe the Bible teaches. But you find someone can go to someone called a prophet, and he might say, you married a wrong person. Mm. This is not God's will for you to be married to this person. You divorce them. And they're going to leave that person because a man of God has said. Now you ask me, does this person really believe that the Bible alone has a fine authority. No. Because he's willing to go against what he believes is the fine authority because a so-called man of God has said something which actually contradicts the word of God. So this is a challenge. This is just one of the examples. There is a very strong warning in the book of Revelation um, for anybody who adds to God's word. Yes. And who subtracts, intentionally subtracts from God's word. Um, the Bible makes a very s strong warning for that. And that also is a very strong case for scripture alone because only God's word is a final authority. It is a final. And, and, and again, this is, so, this is why we need uh, to go back to this truth again. The Bible is our final authority. So that no matter how gifted my pastor is, no matter how knowledgeable my pastor is, if he's going to tell me 
anything that contradicts the scripture, I'm going to say, oh, Pastor, I respect you, but sorry, I can't listen to you on this one. In what respect is scripture the final authority? Yes. In, 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 in what matters? Yes. Okay. So, you know, as we say, in all matters of faith and practice. What are we talking about? Okay. Then? So, all, everything that we are to believe about God and who we are, the Bible has a final authority. So, I'm a sinner who I am. I am who I am before God. I'm a sinner. I need to believe in Christ for my salvation. And only Christ is the Savior and all that. Now, when Christ has saved me, how should I live my life? The Bible tells me this is how you should live your life. So, matters of salvation and matters of Christian living has a fine authority on that. The Bible has no fine authority on, okay, uh, German car uh, and Japanese car, which is a better car. The Bible is not interested in that, right? Uh, so you can say, well, I'll go to the Bible to check what is the final authority, whether I should go for a German car or for a Japanese car. No. So that's why we say that in all matters of faith and practice, matters of believing God who he is, believing who I am before God, and my Christian living, the Bible has a final authority. And the Bible has that authority because of uh, four things that I want to emphasize. First, it is inspired. The Bible is not just a good book. It's not. It is the word of God himself, as we read in 1 Timothy 3, 16 to 17, that all scripture is breathed out by God. So really the words in the scripture were spoken out by God. He used human beings like you and me to write. But what, were, what they were writing was not just their thoughts. Oh, I like this. I will write this down. No, it was God inspiring them, moving them to write those things. And later on, Peter will say the same thing in first, uh, rather in 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 21 to say that the people who wrote the bible they did not write their thoughts but they were carried by the holy spirit and they wrote down what they they heard from the holy spirit to write for us so is the bible because it is inspired word of god it has a final authority because it is god's word itself yes. so god's word is inspired yes the second uh yeah, the second thing that i said is inerrant this, what it means, is that there are no errors in the Bible, and the Bible cannot err. Very key there. Because if I open my Bible today, and I see something, and somebody tells you, oh, well, yeah, of course the Bible says that, but uh, that's not true. Then I can't trust my Bible. Because what else is not true in there? But the Bible, because it's God's own word, the God who does not err, the God who does not tell untruth at all, because it's all truth, his word is inerrant. So that's the inerrancy uh, of the scriptures. The third thing is the authority that the one we have spoken about. Because the Bible is inspired and because the Bible is inerrant, it has authority. Because of that, it can have a final say on your life and on my life. And I can joyfully submit to that and say, well, yeah, it is my final authority because it, is, it was inspired by God and because it contains no error. And the last one is sufficiency. That the Bible is sufficient for all things, believing and living my Christian life. Again, you cannot go to the Bible and say, well, I have a problem in the engine of my car, and I'll go to the Bible to see how can I fix that. Because the Bible is not sufficient for that. Mm. But for my Christian life, how I should live as a God's child, how can I be saved? How can I live in this foreign world? Is the Bible sufficient for who single men and single women should marry? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Of course, for sure, the Bible will not come to you and say, well, Z, you marry Nia. I think that's not what happened to you, and that's not what happened to me. So, well, I, I, I chose freely. Yeah, I chose freely. But for sure, the Bible 
guided you in your choice. Mm. Uh, as a believer, the Bible said, well, Z, you can only marry a fellow believer. Yeah. So you know that you cannot go and propose someone who is not a believer or doesn't know Christ. That's a no, no, no. The Bible is very clear. And, uh, and other things that the Lord guided you. The same with me. I was, uh, uh, when when, when uh, I was proposing to my for sure, I had to make sure that she's a fellow believer because the Bible is very clear there. Uh, I, we had goals. We, we didn't want just to have marriage for the sake of marriage. We wanted a marriage that we honor Christ, and we had to see what does it mean to honor Christ. Uh, are you willing to do that? And we agree, yeah, this is what we want. We want to honor Christ with our lives. So the Bible, yes, gives us guidance there, but it will not give us a name of who to marry. It will not describe this is how the person should look. No, it will not do that. So where should we go for such detail? I'm asking this yes. particularly because we are living in an age where other sources of authority show yeah. up. Yeah, yeah. And uh, they, uh, for young believers, mm. um, this can be a huge question, huge Pastor Convex. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure you've counseled uh, oh, yeah. people that come to you struggling with maybe a dream they had mm-hmm. and uh, trying to make sense of whatever they dreamt and trying to see whether it was God speaking to them mm-hmm. uh, or some word that uh, one person talked to them about that yes. they thought, well, this sounds like a great source of authority. Mm, yes. Um, what should our dear listener know now yes. about any other authority in the light of the authority of scripture? Yes. So there is another theological term that is used, fallible and infallible. Right? So, these are the sources. Again, I can go into the old details, um, like dreams. For me, my Christian life, dreams are just mere dreams. There has been nothing special about my dreams. God has not spoken to me through dreams. I've never got any direction from dreams. I, I dream. Dreams are not inspired. I am not inspired. They are not infallible. Going back to the question that you, you were asking, well, so here's a young man, um, maybe he's about to graduate from college, or maybe he's in college as well, uh, and maybe he meets someone and says, well, I think this is a person that I can spend the rest of my life with. And what should they look for? Uh, should they look for into the Bible to say, well, they are going to describe to me uh, the name, uh, the complexion, and all that. No, that will not be there. The Bible is going to focus on the key things, what this person should be, whatever, whether she's from the north, south, but she should be this. Whether she's light in complexion or black in complexion, she should be this. Uh, whether she dresses this way or dresses that way, she should be this. And that is very key. And then God has given us the freedom, right? Uh, as an individual, you might have your preference. Maybe you might prefer someone who is light in complexion. That's your preference. Uh, another person like someone who is Black and complexion, that's their preference. These are a matter of preferences in which we have freedom. And God allows us to have that freedom. And then there are key things that are non-negotiable where God says, we can't negotiate on this. This has to be the way. What does God say for sure um, about um, marrying from being unequally yoked, for example, if, if you break that versus when you break a preference. Yes, yeah, so again, we can disobey God uh, because he has given us that ability that comes with sin, of course, because we have sinned and then we, we choose to disobey God. 
but there will be consequences. Mm. And uh, if a, a listener who is tuning in right now to this podcast, if you're a believer and maybe you're in a relationship uh, with someone who is not a Christian and somehow you're deceiving yourself that things will work out, that you will change that person, you change that person or your case will be unique, others have failed, but you're not going to fail. I'm sorry to say this. It's going to be hard and painful and you're going to fail. Because God cannot be mocked. God cannot tell a lie. If he says, do not marry unbeliever, he really means it. So, um, if I were in your shoes, I would say, well, it's safer to obey God than to disobey God. Because I've never seen a happy person who has disobeyed God. Finally, what's a, start, what's a good starting point to, to, uh, to embrace sola scriptura? The first thing I think I would say, ask yourself, for me, where do I go for my final authority? Mm. Let's start from there. As you are listening, if there is a thing there, you are going through a situation, where do you go for your final authority? Do you go to friends? You know, I'm thinking about this. Or the first thing that you go to is God's word. God, you pray, I think I'm falling in love with this person but I want you guide us. What are you saying that the person I should marry should be like? And you go to the passages of the scriptures that talk about marriage, and you read there, and you say, yes, what God is saying here agrees with this person that I'm interested in. Or, oh, what God is saying here, no, this person is not like that. And you say, oh, because God is saying that this is not the right person. Even though I'm feeling attracted to him or her, I will not proceed, because God has said, this is not a right way for me. There will be pain in the process because our desires will have to yield to God's desires. Yes. And, and it's, it's, not, it's not easy because, again, we are sinners. And because we are sinners, we are attracted, attracted to things that often are contrary to God's will. Mm. So to leave those things and to go to God's will is painful. But thank God for his grace. He gives us the grace and he helps us. And I can guarantee you, as I've already said before, no single person ever regrets doing God's will. But every time people regret when they go against God's will. We end there for today. Thanks. This also is where we leave it for today. Please email us your thoughts about the program and any questions you may have. You can email us on atreformed.com at gmail.com atreformed one word at gmail.com you can also inbox us on all things reformed podcast page on facebook <laughs>